The year is 1979, and things are falling apart everywhere. After nearly four decades in power, the Shah of Iran flees his country, setting the stage for the return from exile of the fundamentalist leader, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and the invasion a few months later of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, where 52 Americans are taken hostage. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. Civil war begins in El Salvador. The Sandinistas take power in Nicaragua, and the IRA assassinates Queen Elizabeth's cousin, Lord Mountbatten. And here at home in the U.S., a nuclear plant partially melts down at the Three Mile Island facility in Pennsylvania. The economy is shaken as an oil crisis causes energy prices to double, and the divorce rate hits an all-time high. And in that year of 1979, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Sam Shepard's Buried Child, a postmodern drama about the disintegration of the traditional American family and the unraveling of the American dream. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Sam Shepard has always been a playwright whose work I feel I should like more than I do. And I've always felt badly about that, as though I just wasn't smart enough to get him. But when it comes to getting Shepard, maybe it's not so much a matter of IQ as EQ. Less about what you think and more about how his work makes you feel. Because throughout his career, Shepard drew on the complicated feelings he had about his own life to fuel his plays. Shepard was born on November 5th, 1943, in the Chicago suburb of Fort Sheridan, Illinois, to Jane Shook Rogers, a teacher, and her husband Samuel Shepard Rogers, who was then serving in World War II as a bomber pilot, but who would later also become a teacher. As had been the tradition for several generations in the Rogers family, they named their son Samuel Shepard Rogers, but to distinguish him from his dad, they called him Steve. In the mid-50s, the Rogers family, which eventually also included two daughters, moved to an avocado farm in a rural community in Southern California. There, young Steve belonged to the 4-H club and dreamed of becoming a veterinarian. And after graduating from high school in 1961, Steve briefly studied animal husbandry at a local junior college. But he also wrote poetry, and after a friend gave him a copy of Waiting for Godot, he became a big Beckett fan and joined the school's drama club. There he performed in less edgy plays, including starring as Elwood P. Dowd, the man who believes his best friend is a giant rabbit in the comedy Harvey. But, inspired by Beckett, Steve also wrote his own first play, a one-act called The Mildew. It was never performed, but it was printed in the school newspaper, and it contained some of the same angst and mythic elements that would later make Sam Shepard famous. But within just a year, Steve Rogers dropped out of college. Over the years, his father, unable to replicate the feelings of meaning and accomplishment he'd experienced as a bomber pilot, had become an alcoholic. 
and the two had often clashed in arguments that teetered on the edge of violence. After one particularly intense blow-up, the 19-year-old Steve packed up his car and drove away for good. But his relationship with his father would continue to haunt him and his plays. To support himself, Steve took odd jobs, including one delivering newspapers. And during one lunch break, he saw an ad from the Bishop's Company Repertory Players, a traveling theater company that was looking for actors. On a whim, he decided to try out for it. He later liked to tell the story that he was so nervous during the audition that he read the stage directions along with his lines. But he was tall and good-looking, and they took him anyway. For the next eight months... Steve and the rest of the company crowded into two Ford station wagons, each pulling a small trailer filled with all the costumes, props, and sets they needed, and they toured the country, performing at schools and churches and staying in the homes of local residents where they played. He was paid $10 a week, and he loved it. But when the company got to New York in the fall of 1963, Steve left the group. He got in touch with his childhood friend, Charlie Mingus, the son of the jazz musician Charles Mingus, who offered him a place to stay and helped him find work as a busboy at the Village Gate nightclub. Greenwich Village was a hotbed of creative activity in the 1960s, and the staff at the gate was filled with writers, musicians, artists, and actors. When the club's head waiter, Ralph Cook, founded a company to showcase experimental plays, he called it Theater Genesis, and he invited Steve to write something for it. Two of those one acts, The Rock Garden and Cowboys, debuted at Theater Genesis in October 1964, and Steve began calling himself Sam Shepard. The young playwright took pride in writing fast, sometimes turning out a play in a day, but it turned out to be good stuff, and he was soon a darling of the downtown theater community, having his work produced at such now legendary venues as La Mama and Cafe Chino. Just two years after arriving in New York, he won the first of what would be 10 Obie Awards. In a review of one of Shepard's plays that he wrote for The Village Voice, Edward Albee declared that, Sam Shepard is one of the youngest and most gifted of the new playwrights working these days. The signature of his work is its unencumbered spontaneity, the impression Shepard gives of inventing drama as a form each time he writes a play. Other forms of validation quickly followed. Shepard won a Guggenheim grant in 1968 that gave him enough money to quit his day job and write full-time. And an excerpt from his play, The Rock Garden, was used in the long-running review, O Calcutta, and that gave him extra income, too. Shepard also began moving in lofty artistic circles. A girlfriend introduced him to Joseph Chaikin, a co-founder of the major experimental company, The Open Theater, who became a lifelong mentor. And Shepard was recruited to work on a script for the Italian filmmaker Michelangelo Antonioni. He palled around with Keith Richards, the lead guitarist of the Rolling Stones, and he collaborated with Bob Dylan, 
who encouraged him to pay more attention to refining his craft and editing his work. In 1969, Shepard married the actress Olan Jones, with whom he had a son. But he wasn't a faithful spouse. He had a brief affair with the singer Joni Mitchell that she chronicled in her song, Coyote. And in 1970, he began a year-long affair with Patti Smith, who was then making a name for herself as a downtown poet. Shepard encouraged Smith to perform her works, and he bought her a guitar to accompany herself as she did so, launching her in to what would become a major career as a rock star. They also co-wrote a play about their affair that they called Cowboy Mouth. Their relationship ended when, feeling guilty, Shepard moved his family to England in an attempt to save his marriage. But the bond between Shepard and Smith held. They reconnected when they were in their 60s and remained close until his death. After spending three years in England, Shepard moved back to the States in 1974 and settled in the Bay Area, where he became a writer-in-residence at the Magic Theater of San Francisco. There he began working on a play that he called The Last Gas Station. It was about an unhappy couple named Dodge and Halley, but it didn't go anywhere. He took it out again three years later, and this time, inspired by an unsettling trip he and a former girlfriend made to visit his grandparents in 1966, the play eventually evolved into Buried Child. The plot of Buried Child centers around an impromptu visit that a young man named Vince makes to the failing farm where his family lives. At first, no one, his ailing and alcoholic grandfather, his flirtatious grandmother, his mentally unstable father, or his physically disabled uncle, seem to recognize him. But as Vince and his girlfriend try to settle in, his relatives act out their grievances toward one another and tell conflicting versions of family secrets, including about the identity of that buried child. By the end, Vince resignedly claims his inheritance to their troubled past and uncertain future. The three members of the Pulitzer jury voted unanimously for Buried Child, and they made a point of saying that they were recognizing Shepard's entire body of work because they felt that not only was he one of the most talented playwrights of his generation, but that more than any other, his work was grappling with contemporary American life. They refused to name any runners-up. For his part, Shepard professed to be unimpressed when he got the news about winning the prize. He said that the first roping award he'd won in a local rodeo had given him a fuller feeling of accomplishment than winning the Pulitzer. That was probably bravado. But unlike some Pulitzer winners who froze after winning the prize, Shepard went on to write at least 20 plays after Buried Child, including True West and Fool for Love, both of which were Pulitzer finalists. But 1978 was also the year in which the film director Terrence Malick cast Shepard in his film Days of Heaven. Shepard played a dying farmer who becomes the target of a scheme waged by grifters played by Richard Gere and Brooke Adams. 
the movie was controversial, and it bankrupted its studio, but it made Shepard a star. People began referring to him as the new Gary Cooper. More movie roles followed. In 1983, he was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of the iconic test pilot Chuck Yeager in The Right Stuff. But Shepard was ambivalent about doing movies. They took him away from the theater that he loved, but they also paid a lot more. He had made only about $6,000 in royalties from his plays in 1977. Now he could easily earn many times that by doing just one movie. But, according to one biographer, Shepard turned down the Eugene O'Neill role in Warren Beatty's Reds that eventually went to Jack Nicholson, the lead role in Urban Cowboy that to John Travolta, and the lead in Field of Dreams that went to Kevin Costner. Still, from then on, Shepard split his time between films and the stage and ended up doing over 60 screen roles. The most significant was probably the 1982 movie Francis, opposite Jessica Lange, with whom he fell madly in love. Shepard divorced Olan Jones two years later, and although he and Lang never formally married, they remained together for 27 years and raised two children. But despite his film career, Shepard remained a man of the theater, teaching playwriting, writing plays, and just hanging out in theaters. I saw him having drinks at the bar at the Signature Theater a couple of times, and once sitting alongside Tony Kushner and John Guir at a workshop presentation of a Susan Laurie Parks play down at the Public Theater. After his death, Parks wrote a lovely remembrance of that evening and how it sparked an even more moving encounter she had with Shepard. You can find a link to that piece in the show notes. And you can also find a link there to Shepard's reading of a poem called When You Die. In 2014, Shepard was diagnosed with a form of ALS. He died three years later on July 27, 2017, at the age of 73. But his plays live on because actors love the challenges they pose. Buried Child was last seen here in New York in a new group production headed by the powerhouse husband and wife team of Ed Harris and Amy Madigan as Dodge and Halley. It's available on YouTube. In 2019, Signature Theatre mounted a revival of his 1977 play Curse of the Starving Class, and in that same year, Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano starred on Broadway as the battling brothers in a revival of what may be Shepard's most popular work, True West. As regular listeners might be able to tell, I've done more research for this episode than I've done for any of the two dozen or so that have come before it, and yet I'm still not sure I can sum up a Shepard. But I'm now totally fascinated by him. So I'm really fortunate that my guest this month is Robert Greenfield, who has just published a new biography about Sam Shepard that he's called True West, Sam Shepard's Life, Work, and Times. 
Hello, Robert Greenfield. Welcome to All the Drama. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I wanted to start off by asking, what initially drew you to writing about Sam Shepard? Well, it, maybe not the story that <laughs> I should be telling, but I was between jobs, and one of my agents called me and said, are you the guy to write the Sam Shepard books? Well, if you're looking for work, you're the guy to write it. If I had some sense of him, I, I'm not going to say I really knew his work. I did not. And I had to talk my way into it. I, I took four years writing the book, and I did all the research on my own. And what was, I didn't know this, but it has to do with my age and how old Sam would have been had he still been alive. And I was in New York when he was in New York. I was in London when he was in London. I was in Northern California when he lived in Marin County. I, w I was constantly in L.A. doing screenplay business when he was down there uh, acting and then performing to make the money to enable him to write his plays. And as well, in the course of the research, I encountered people that I didn't know we knew in common. And then, this is a long answer, but astonishingly to me, uh, reading, trying to read everything he ever wrote. His collections of short stories, quasi-memoirs, his poems, his letters, which I find astonishing. Sam was just so gifted. The overwhelming nature of his talent and the respect that I have for him. It enabled me to put him in the context of the times through which we both live. How would you describe a Sam Shepard play? That's a wonderful question, because in preparation for this, I said, well, I better go back to the book and take a look at what I wrote about Barry Child. And I found it virtually impossible to describe on the page a Sam Shepard play, because what he did was genius. He created a reality that was completely unique. Barry Child reflects Sam's joining Eugene O'Neill and Samuel Beckett. The insanity or the brilliance or both of taking the family as his subject in his five great plays and then continuing all the avant-garde, Beckett-like, surreal stuff that he had perfected while living on the Lower East Side. It's extraordinary. So what do you think attracted the Pulitzer jury to give the award to Barry Child. It was the first off-off-Broadway play ever to be given a Pulitzer. It had only run at a limited engagement at the, I think, the this theater downtown. These were very august critics, all from an entirely different generation. You know, Sam was always in the right place at the right time, and he was never unnoticed. Right from the beginning, in the first article the New York Sunday Times Magazine ever wrote about the scene in Lower Manhattan, he was the poster child. And it was his photograph that, you know, like nailed the article. And, I mean, really what this brought was attention. It brought extraordinary attention to the entire scene. And so do you think the Pulitzer jury was recognizing his work or the whole off-off Broadway movement? It was his work. In other words, nothing else was ever recognized after the, I mean, by the Pulitzer Committee. 
you know. And Sam was dismissive. You know, he'd been to rodeos that were better than winning the Buick's Prize. <laughs> so you think he really was blasé about winning the award? No, I don't think so. I think as a writer, you can't not experience pleasure at being recognized. However, having everything I tell you about Sam, the exact opposite is also true. Most complex, complicated, contradictory human being I've ever written about, and I have written about what in my neighborhood in Brooklyn they would call some real beauties. I mean, Sam always said he wanted to be a rock star, never wanted to be a playwright. This is someone who had a year and a half of community college. He was an indifferent student in high school at best, completely self-educated. He's one of those artists who were plugged directly into what Jung called the collective unconscious. Hmm. This stuff came right through him. And in the beginning, he just left it the way it had come. But then another reason I respect him, he so learned the technique of theater. It's so difficult. How do you get people on and off? How do you, you know, the act breaks. And he became a theatrical kind of a genius. He directed plays. He understood the nature of the medium. And, and it's not an easy one to, to really work in. You said that right from the beginning, he was successful. He was on that New York Times cover. He was sort of a darling of the downtown yes. scene. And I have to ask, how much of a role did his looks play? Also, really wonderful question. I mean, I hate to be saying this in this day and age of political correctness, but I'll put it this way. It doesn't hurt to be beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't know personally, <laughs> but I believe it's a different world if you look a certain way. One of the things I've found as I've been doing this series is that a lot of the Pulitzer winners have a hard time moving on after they win the prize. It, it seems to create a lot of pressure. But that doesn't seem to have been the case with Sam, because he continued to turn out really great plays. I would think the reason for that, he brought a voice to the theater in New York that no one in New York had ever heard before. I mean, Sam comes from the other California. You know, not the Beach Boys, not a girl in a bikini by a palm tree on the sand. Comes from the inland California, drag racing, A&W root beer, cruising up and down the main street. It's another sensibility. And, and so I don't think the Pulitzer affected him because his consciousness and sensibility had nothing to do with a New York frame of mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. I wonder if you have any thoughts about why he changed his name from Steve Rogers to Sam Shepard. Well, the naming process in that family is so bizarre. I'm not trying to sell books here much, but you have to read the book to understand. Every son was given the same name. And so Sam's proper name is Samuel Shepard Rogers, but he was called Steve. So his name was Steve Rogers. One of the reasons he changed it, I mean, you got to love him. He made stuff up constantly when talking to people like you. At one point, he said, well, I learned that Steve Rogers was the name of Captain America, <laughs> which is not the reason he changed his name. 
There are varying opinions on this. The most interesting of them being there was a very famous murder case that was on the front page of every tabloid in America for months. Dr. Sam Shepard, S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D, was accused of murdering his wife in Cleveland. And Sam changed his name because he thought it would pack the house. People would come (laughs) to see a play by a convicted murderer. (laughs) I don't know. What I can say to you is, in America, it all begins when you change your name. Bob Dylan. That's Bob Zimmer. You know, once you've started the mythic process of adopting another persona, everything starts to move in a different direction. Sam Shepard is a much better name, although Rogers is not bad, but it enabled him to create the cowboy persona Hmm. that most people believe was his true identity. I had wondered if it had anything to do with distancing himself from his father. That's absolutely the truth. And he wrote in one of these prose pieces that he had done everything in his life to do everything he could to make himself different from his father. He had changed his name. He had never listened to the music his father liked. He had never put a hand on a woman in anger. And then as his sister told me, Sandy Rogers, sometimes Sam would look at her and say, it's the old man. He was completely haunted by his father, who appears in play after play after play. He, Sam tried to reconcile with his father, who was so far gone, who was such a grievous alcoholic, that it proved to be impossible. But he never, never got over it, which you wouldn't think looking at the cowboy persona photographs, right? Well, it's interesting because you mentioned Eugene O'Neill earlier. And I can see the parallels between the way they used their early life to inform their greatest plays. Again, I took a quick look at my summation of Barry Child. So much of it is based on his grandfather, who's the model for Dodge. The visit is Sam and his girlfriend at the time, Joyce Aaron, visiting the grandfather. You know, some of it's real, some of it's made up. Sam had the kind of mind where he did not distinguish between what had happened and the way he felt it should have happened. Hmm. And he wasn't a con man. He wasn't trying to fool people. He wasn't selling himself. He just didn't perceive reality in the way that others did because of this gift that he had. He never understood himself. That's one last thing I should say here is that unlike other artists who were plugged into that collective unconscious and The ones I always cited were, you know, Bob Dylan, Pablo Picasso, and Miles Davis. They were like guided missiles. But in his letters, Sam is constantly saying, why am I like this? Why do I keep doing the same things over and over again? And one of the reasons is the alcoholism that came down through the generations of men in his family. Hmm. Hmm. Do you think he's been influential in terms of the writers, the playwrights who came after him? I can't think of anyone. Because Sam was always dealing with toxic masculinity. And he was always dealing with what the hell happened to the American dream. You know, Curse of the Starving Class. 
everybody's opening the refrigerator and there's nothing in there to eat. It's the, it's the land of plenty, but the cupboard is bare. Gee, I wonder why. That's so relevant now. But I don't think people are writing about this now. In a way, he's kind of a unicorn. You know what? That is so right. He's one of a kind because of the background, the sensibility, the outlook, and the time in which he lived. I think he's also a unicorn among Pulitzer winners. And I really appreciate your talking to us and poking at the mystery of Sam Shepard. Thank you very much for joining us in doing that. He was a mystery, and I appreciate having been here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at jan at broadwayradio.com.